from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that mixes action with the occult. He writes military thrillers, mixing special forces with supernatural forces. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, A Whisper in the Dark, as well as his upcoming novel, The Cannibal Peaks. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Guy Quintero. Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Uh, thank you for joining me. I really loved your juggernaut of an action thriller entitled A Whisper in the Dark. It was a great read just from the elements of action and intrigue alone, but was even more enjoyable due to the unique supernatural spin you put on the story. So I'm very interested in hearing how you created this monster. Well, Stephen King says to write about what you know. And uh, I leaned on that a lot. I leaned on a lot of my own life experiences as well as things that I tend to gravitate toward. Well, in stories that involve military action, a common theme is for a special ops team to be monitored remotely from a home base to work out logistics, let them know if their mission has been compromised, and give them any kind of support that they may need. In your story, that remote assistance is provided telepathically by a scryer named Elizabeth. So can you tell us a little bit about what a scryer is and Elizabeth's role in the story? Well, scryer is pretty much a spiritual and arcane support for the agency. During my studies in the occult, you learn that there are more than just you know, things that go bump in the night. Um, <laughs> there are things that we can't see. And that's where the scryers come in. They basically assist with uh, combating the things that good old-fashioned 556 five, rounds can't take out. <laughs> Elizabeth's purpose was also to add that element of the spiritual to the team, to balance them out, to balance the testosterone and the, the <laughs> violence and the, <laughs> the pine corners and M4s and M16s to give it that spiritual balance that's necessary in order to combat the forces of darkness. And I'm a devout Christian. Horribly flawed, though, so don't think that when I say, people say devout, it's like, they go, oh, this person's perfect. No, I'm horribly flawed. Uh, I'm doing my best like everyone else, but I'm a devout Christian, and I believe in what the Bible says about the battle of forces of good and evil, that it's not just on the material plane. It's also a battle of principalities and powers, and most of those elements are things that the human mind can't readily comprehend on the material plane. So that, that's one of the reasons why I've incorporated in the agency, the scryers. And actually, the scryers themselves, there's a very intricate history behind them. They're actually older than the unholy slaying agency that I created. And they were actually implemented in my world, of course. They were actually implemented into the agency and brought into the fold by JFK during the 1950s. Because he understood that there was a need for them to have a spiritual element and that the United States government would eventually, after seeing the aftermath of what happened with uh, World War II. This is a little more backstory than I've given in the story. I'm probably going to give away future <laughs> plot devices, but we're going to bring some Nazi occultism into it. And he realized that the United States government would eventually have to face off against such a threat again in the future and that they needed to be ready. Hmm. And so the Scryers, they have, a, they have a very immense history. They are actually the descendants of 
those individuals that suffered during the, the witch trials. Mm-hmm. And it was actually because of a corruption that happened within the governments of those times and the, the corrupted church during those times, seeking out and killing psychics and magicians that were benevolent and working for the good of mankind. So that, that's a, I know I just said a lot there and I'm trying not to give away too much, but there's an intricate backstory to the Scryers. I can go on for hours about mm-hmm. them. Now, are you talking about something that's part of your fictional world? Because it sounds similar to like the Gnostic Christians. If yeah, it's familiar. very similar. That's actually where I derived a lot of my, wow, you have such a thorough knowledge. It's very <laughs> impressive. Yeah, that's actually where I got a lot of the inspiration from was the Gnosticism. Gnostic Christians, in my opinion, are the missing spiritual side of Christianity. I feel like a lot of spiritualism that was incorporated in Christianity during its inception ended up becoming fractured and missing. And I believe that was probably most likely a byproduct of the Council of Nicaea, mm-hmm. where a lot of it became organized into a dogmatic rudimentary system that we know today in comparison to what it was before. And what it was before was more spiritual. It was seeing the world from not just the material viewpoint of life and death, but understanding that the mind, body, and soul permeate beyond all of those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's so many missing books in the Bible, too. There's so many missing books. And um, I've described to many of them, actually. And a lot of people consider me a heretic for it. But honestly, like perfect example would be the book of Enoch. That book, in order for the rest of the Bible to make sense, you need that book. Mm -hmm. People want to know, well, why are there giants in the promised land? Hmm. Where do they come from? And it raises a lot of questions because it doesn't really go in depth into Genesis and the previous books about why they were there and how they arrived and why God even flooded the earth. And I talk to the average Christian. I say, hey, why do you think God flooded the earth? Well, I said, well, people are wicked. Well, we've always been wicked. We've always been flawed and wicked. And we were born into sin. Why is he flooding the earth now? He flood the earth every day. Actually, if uh, (laughs) that were the case, there was a reason why he did it. So we have to examine that and say, well, what happened here? And the Book of Enoch explains that. A bunch of other books as well, um, Yasher and the Book of Thomas, and they don't directly explain it as much as Enoch, but they do touch on it. And I believe Gnosticism has a lot of the missing elements that Christianity needs to become complete again. Because Gnosticism also kind of goes off the rails at times. Mm-hmm. They say things that go a little beyond what I think should be the central grounding, which is the understanding of salvation, love, and unity, which is the ultimate message of the faith. And the ultimate message of spirituality in a whole that needs to be understood. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where the scribes come from. And I apologize. I went off on a few tangents there. No, that's, yeah, the, um, you talk about the Council of Nicaea, where they kind of condensed it down to the 66 canonical books. There's the Apocrypha, which I think Enoch is a part of. But there's so many other things that didn't survive because they pretty much destroyed all of the records and literature associated with the Gnostics that if you want to study Gnosticism, there's very little to study. And as far as the scrying, whenever I read Elizabeth in your book, it was like you said, she was there to kind of offset the testosterone. You know, everybody's locked and loaded, kicking doors and blowing people's heads off. But then you kind of had Elizabeth who it was almost like she was this uh, representation of the ideal of the sacred feminine watching over her children because she would always, you know, let them know, well, not to give too much away, but would kind of let them know when danger was present. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You amaze me with how you're able to pick up on that. You're absolutely right. And it goes back to Genesis, what you said, you know, God made humanity in his image, man and woman. So there is a masculine feminine balance to that. And that's honestly, where you see the greatest success is when everything is working in balance. Yeah. Well, you obviously used your military experience for the action sequences and the way the team operated. So as kind of something funny I thought of, can you give me some examples in the book of aspects of the military operations that were true to real life? And then maybe some examples of where you took artistic license for dramatic effect, like things that you'd say, no, we don't really do that. That shit will get you killed. Well, um, (laughs) for the most part, I tried to keep the operational side of it as authentic as possible. For the sake of the story, I didn't incorporate as many characters as you would see during a normal combat operation. Mm -hmm. I tried to condense that down. But as far as the tactics weapons utilized and how they were utilized, I try to keep everything as authentic as possible and true to life. Okay. So all the jargon is... Yes. All 
actual all the the jargon radio etiquette everything that i've tried to incorporate but i've also tried to use the rookie as a sounding board for those individuals who might not readily understand it Mm. and be able to say okay well i'm gonna learn from watching this guy and see how he endures it because honestly that's how i learned i was recruited by the marine corps and brought into the army and i've had the privilege and the pleasure of working with some very dynamic and incredible men who were very high speed. And I had to hit the ground running and learn on the fly. And so that's one of the reasons why I think I was able to write the rookie so well was because I was that guy. You were that guy. Asking the dumb questions. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what does this mean? And they look at you, they look at you like, oh, you FNG. This is what it means. So everyone learns. Everyone starts from somewhere and Rome wasn't built in a day. And I tried to incorporate not only that, but the combat tactics. Like initially when they went into the warehouse and how they and filled into the room, mm-hmm. you know, taking their sectors of fire and alternating as they were entering through the infiltration point and then covering down on each other's sectors of fire and making sure that the entire room was covered and that they were not within each other's sectors of fire, but overlapping so that they had a good perimeter. And also battling withdrawal during the escape of Morehouse Asylum. So you just don't take off and start running like yeah. a chicken with your head cut off. Like, uh, hey, sound the retreat. There is a way you do it. And sometimes when you watch things in the movies and you're like, that's not how you do it. You get shot up, buddy. You, mm-hmm. you can't just start running away while the enemy's firing at you. You need someone to cover for you while you're moving. And so an example is a bounding withdrawal there. And then the final battle when they're facing off against the main antagonist, you see the application of bounding overwatch so that both the elements were covering each other as they were moving in. But of course, they're fighting a supernatural threat that was overpowering them. Mm -hmm. So the tactic didn't really work that well and it it fell apart. Yeah, it's funny how at least I've found if I'm reading something with a lot of action, the way things that would operate in real life translates very well to the written word. But on a screen you know, it's not that exciting. Like watching somebody fire a gun on screen isn't exciting unless the bullet makes a car blow up or, you know, there's like this bright flash of muzzle fire that doesn't usually happen and stuff like that. But if you shoot a gun in real life, that simple thing that looks really lame on screen is pretty intense. Like, wow, I've got a lot of power in my hand right now. So you're absolutely right. That's why I wanted to ask you that question to see if you had to take any artistic license or whether the real world way of doing things translated well into the uh, written word, because it was very good in the book. Well, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate that. I think I did embellish a little on the details. uh, (laughs) But but yeah, you're absolutely right. I actually had that moment when I sat down and I started writing the first combat scene. I started thinking to myself, okay. What happens when you fire a weapon? Because you've done it so many times, after a while, it becomes as simple as breathing. Mm-hmm. You expect a recoil. The muzzle flashes, they don't startle you as much. And, you know, the smell of the primer when it's set off, the sound of the brass hitting the ground, those things don't register as much as when you first start. And so I had to really go back to my roots and think to myself, how was it the first time when I stepped on that range as a young private in basic training at MCRD? What was it like when I was taken from one point to the next and now i'm at edson range Mm -hmm. and i'm learning how to use an m16a2 service rifle to hit a target 500 yards away what did i have to do and i had to recall everything remembering the kick that the weapon spot stock puts into your shoulder Mm -hmm. remembering what it feels like when you're trying to hit a target that's on the opposite end because when you look at a firearm it's meant to harm things meant to hurt things that's its entire purpose whether it's done offense or defense that's its entire purpose so There's kind of a stigma around firearms that they're dangerous, and they are. They're very dangerous. And I had to apply that to the writing because after a while, for me, they don't become that dangerous. They're just now like a tool. Mm -hmm. And you have to bring back that aspect of fear for the action sequence to become completed in my writing. Okay. Well, right off the bat, at the beginning of the book, the first scene involves a voodoo priest named, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, is it Edjwale? That is correct, yes. Okay. That is correct. Yeah. Was he inspired by any particular real or fictional character? Well, not really. Edgewale is actually an inversion of myself. He's kind of a self-insert. But one of the Black antagonists that would be more cerebral Mm -hmm. and was ahead of the protagonist in in a sense where he uses intellect over his brawn, although he does have brawn and that will be shown in future installments. But that was my main goal, to create a Black antagonist. 
that was able to outthink, outpace, and outmaneuver his much stronger opponents and keep them off balance the entire time. I wanted to try to make him as unique as possible, but I think that there is nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. So I, I did my best, but honestly, he's just an inversion of me. I took a lot of my family's background and culture, and it's, we have a very mixed background and culture. From uh, We have Spanish, Puerto Rican, Haitian, Jamaican, Dominican, mm-hmm. Italian. And so I took a lot of those roots, the ones that I'm not really that in touch with, and I try to bring them to the forefront. I took liberties with his practices as far as his dark sorcery and things like that, because he's actually turned away from the tenets of voodoo and santeria and all of those things that mm-hmm. and my family also practiced those. My extended family practices those as well. And he's kind of just turned completely to darker forms mm-hmm. or forbidden forms of it. And that's where I got him from. He was an interesting character to write, very interesting character to write. And I wanted him to be as alien as possible and to catch people by surprise. When you initially get introduced to the antagonist, I didn't want him to feel like something you've seen or done before. That's a question I had. You mentioned forms of voodoo that are like dark. It seems like voodoo has sort of a stigma as being kind of this dark thing. I guess it's synonymous with the voodoo doll, which is usually causing harm on somebody. Is that what it is? Because from what I read, voodoo is, you know, just kind of like a folk religion. Well, I think the negative connotations come from Hollywood. And I think that people tend to fear the unknown. And Stephen King mentioned that, that the greatest elements of fear come from the unknown. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, any form of magic ultimately starts in the mind. And then it's the projection of will out into the nominal world. There are elements to everything in the occult that are both dark and light. But every style of magic that exists, including voodoo, is a tool. And it's like a hammer. It can be used to build a home. Mm -hmm. It can be used to create repairs. Or it can be used to smash someone's skull, clean off their shoulders. So it depends on what the practitioner decides to use it for. And when I was studying the elements of voodoo for Ajwali, I went into the more darker regions of it. And that's where I usually got it from. So it might seem very unfamiliar to what people normally see, because most voodoo practitioners are actually very benevolent, very good people. And their goal is actually to help others. Yeah, I guess there's a way to take a tool and use it against people or use it to help people. So, yeah. Exactly. Was my estimation of voodoo correct? It's kind of like a folk religion or a folk mysticism? It's actually a a more complex than that. It's a derivative of a combination of many spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of modern-day practitioners of the occult, Voodoo is simply just a vehicle of the mind, Mm -hmm. and it allows us to reach the point where we're able to create the change conformity that one's will in the nominal world. So whether you want to study Voodoo or Kabbalah or Wicca or High Magic or Santeria or the Chaos Magic, there's Druidical Arts, the I Ching, there's different forms of magic out there. Ultimately, it all comes from here. Mm -hmm. And the rituals that are set in place to get you from one point to another have been established through many practitioners and predecessors before you. And that is what allows you to create the emphasis on the nominal world. And a lot of modern day magicians are starting to come to the realization that you don't really need these archaic beliefs. And we're starting to see it with a lot of the modern day practices and philosophies of the secrets where they're able to think positive and cause a change. Mm. And I'm making light of it, not because I don't agree with it, but rather because it's more complex than that. Yeah. Because you have to actually expend the energy to go from one point to another. So magic in itself is psychology first. Mm -hmm. So if you believe you can do something, if you set your mind to it, then you expend that energy, you go out into the world and you make it happen. That's the essence of magic. And what Alisa Crowley used to say was, the art and science of causing change and conformity to one's will. Mm. Yeah, I think a real common practice these days is chaos magic. From what I understand, it's kind of like the MMA of magic. You just kind of cherry pick these practices from different traditions and kind of form your own. Well, this is what works for me. So I don't know why they call it chaos. It seems to work well. (laughs) I've heard so many reasons and explanations for it, but I think the name comes from the idea that as you put your will out into the world, you don't really know what to expect. And mm. That's where gotcha. the idea of chaos comes from. Gotcha. Well, a significant part of the story involves the demon Payman, 
which most horror fans will be familiar with from the movie Hereditary. What was your particular interest in him? Well, Paimon... Um, or Paimon, excuse me. <laughs> uh, it's, I might be pronouncing it wrong. When I was doing my research into the occult, I wanted to bring forth uh, antagonists that we don't see very often. We always see the big names and then the hierarchy of hell and demonology. So we always see Beelzebub, Mephistopheles, Asmodeus, Baal, all those baddies. But I wanted to bring forth the ones that we don't see very often. This is why I chose Paimon and Andras. They're very, very dangerous in their own. I think Paimon's a knight and Andras being a duke. Mm. There's so many in the Lemageddon that are listed. And I just started doing my research and I was like, all right, these two are the ones that coincide with what I'm trying to do here. And because the demons are very manipulative and they're ultimately using Etoile, he thinks he's speaking to one being. He thinks he's speaking to Voodoo Lois, but he's not. He's speaking to demons. That's ultimately where I came up with the idea of who are the closest ones, these Lois, and how would they use their energy to trick him into believing that they are something else. And I had to make sure they were similar because Edwale is tapped into the Edric layers and he would know if someone was tricking him. If there weren't nuances there to convince him, okay, this is who I'm talking to. This goes back to people playing with a Ouija board. They don't really know what's happening on the other side and they need to be careful because we can't really see who we're communicating with when we're using these tools, these devices. Even the most gifted of us that are tapped into the Edric layers we claim we have power and all of this stuff. We can't see what's happening there, but we're not tuned to that. So you might be talking to what you think you're talking to, but you might be talking to something more nefarious that's trying to get its way into your worldview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the Lamegaton, which within the Lamegaton, I think it's like five books. There's the Goetia. You didn't happen to listen to the episode with Danny Stygian, did you? No, I haven't yet. I haven't. He made an indie horror film. It's a found footage, and it's based on a guy that starts a vlog, and he's vlogging himself summoning all 72 demons of the Goetia. And so, yeah, I was wondering, obviously you said that you chose those two because of their ranks, and I guess how they would fit in hierarchically to deceive Edwale into doing their will because they're dealing with somebody that can see into the etheric layers and it's not your everyday run-of-the-mill person. He's going to be harder to deceive. So I was wondering what your particular experience was with the Goetia in particular. I've read the Goetia. I've read two of the books, mostly just for research. I am not a practitioner in any shape or form. You haven't summoned 72 demons? No, no, this is all, <laughs> these are all just curiosity. You say there are your dogs in the background. Are they demons crawling around? <laughs> <laughs> no, I respect it very much. More of it's just a curiosity into the archaic mind of the ages long past and being done to help create a better atmosphere for my writing. But no, I have not tried to summon anything. <laughs> um, I don't actually practice uh, <laughs> any of those it's just like someone looking up Greek mythology. Yeah. They're just curious about the stories and things like that. For me, I respect it very much. And being a Christian, I understand that these things exist and I don't play with them. I've read a lot of cases, demonic possession, a lot of awful things that happen to people who play with the forces of darkness. And there's a saying within the cult community where be careful summoning something you cannot easily dismiss from yeah. your life. And there's another saying, the first rule of dealing with demons is, don't deal with demons. <laughs> so yeah, I wish that individual luck and I hope they're safe, but I would not play with that stuff like that. Gotcha. Well, I would have to say my favorite character is, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Knee. Is that how you pronounce it? Knee. Because I love the lone wolf operator, like especially Hitman, day of the jackal. And then the remake jackal. I ate those movies up. I know you're not supposed to cheer for the villain, but I love a slick operating hitman, a slick loan operator, and Nee is definitely that. So who was your favorite character to write? My favorite character was Edwale, but Nee was a close second. Yeah. Nee was a close second. And she's near and dear to my heart because she's modeled after a lot of the operations that happened for uh, the Vietnam Tunnel Rats. Okay. And I actually had the privilege to meet some of them during my career and they passed that knowledge down to me and my unit of course and we learned from them they were great people and some of the things they did were just incredible 
you hear these stories and it sounds like something out of a movie. It sounds like something out of one of my books. <laughs> yeah. And then I started incorporating it. But yeah, just going down there by yourself into those deep, dark tunnels, not knowing what you're going to run into, not knowing if you're going to run into some punchy sticks that are going to run through your foot and mm. take you out of commission, not knowing if you're going to run into a 10 foot deep pit and then be stuck at the enemy's mercy. And just, you know, just sometimes going in there with just a 45 and a flashlight and a lot of courage, mm-hmm. a lot of courage. I'll be honest with you. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I could not do it. Yeah. I'd be scared out of my mind. So these were actual people during the Vietnam War that operated? Yes. Okay. And they operated as lone operators? or Well, usually they were augments to an infantry or victor unit. Mm-hmm. And that unit would send them in once they discovered a tunnel. Mm-hmm. And these tunnel rats would go in there and they would clear them out all by themselves. And I think I expressed this later on in the story about why the uh, ghost team went in without the augments from Monarch. is because fighting in subterranean regions, it's so cramped that the more people you have, the more dangerous it becomes. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you don't need a big element. You just want to go in with just the right number of people. And in those days, the tunnel rats, they had to go in by themselves because the tunnels that the big communes were so narrow and so small that only one person was able to fit in at a time. And I'm sure it's probably a lot easier to remain invisible the fewer people you have going right, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking aesthetically of the book, I love the interior design. You have inverted pentagrams for scene transitions, and in some cases have what I believe are the corresponding demonic sigils for the corresponding chapters. That, along with your exterior cover, was a very powerful aesthetic. So where did that design come from? Did you have anything to do with the concept? Yeah, a lot of them came from, of course, the uh, Keys of Solomon. I wanted to add a genuine feel of the occult to it to add more of that horror and mystery. Mm -hmm. And the cover was chosen by my manager, actually. We were looking for a cover and she thought it was perfect and so did I. I really wanted to express the plot without giving away too much. I think some covers give away too much. I didn't want to do that. I wanted someone to look at it and go, okay, wow, what's happening here? And you see this woman and she's suffering, but she's not just suffering in one aspect. She's suffering in multiple aspects. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Ajwali did to her. He not only took her out physically, but he pilled her mind, body, and soul mm-hmm. and utilized that to, well, I won't want to get too much, but yeah. utilized <laughs> that to his ends. Yeah. Well, Tell me about Sinister Raven Publishing. Is that your personal press or? Yeah, Sinister Raven Publishing is my personal press. I started it basically to stay true to my artistic vision. I've been on this journey for a very long time and I've taken a lot of advice from my fellow writers. When I was first starting out, I was submitting to all the big names and all the agents for almost 12 years. And it was kind of a godsend because I've started talking to more experienced writers and authors and they were saying, hey, You might lose some of your creativity and you might lose some of your creative license down the line if you are beholden to someone else. Mm -hmm. Because of that, I decided that it was just best to go spark out on my own after an event that happened where I was about to get picked up by an agent and we were all ready to do our thing. But then my agent decided to just leave the industry. (laughs) And at that moment, I decided, yeah, I was like, okay, well, maybe I just... Great timing. (laughs) Yeah, right. I just need to do all the path of least resistance. And when I had first started looking into writing, I was maybe about 12 years old back in the sixth grade. And I started writing fantasy stories and horror stories and jump, you know, later on eight years young, I'm just about to join the Marine Corps. And I started looking at the publishing community and the indie publishing community at that time, this was probably back in the late nineties, early two thousands. It wasn't as built up as it was now and the resources weren't as abundant. And so it never crossed my mind that I should maybe take this route because at that time, it wasn't really something that a serious writer would do. And that's horrible for me to say. But when I came out of the the service in 2011, and I looked over back into the community and I started redoing everything, it had built up to become a major powerhouse. And I'm very Mm -hmm. proud to be a part of it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess when you talk about loss of creative control, does that usually happen like in the editing process? Yes, Roger. The okay. editing process. I heard from a lot of my friends that have gone through and they've told me what happens. And listening to other writers talking on podcasts as well, and they say the same thing. You might lose some of your creative process because of editing and through other people who might be investing into your work and they might have a certain thing they want incorporated or not incorporated into your work. 
Tell me about the production of these trailers for the book that uh, I've seen on your social media. My manager actually reached out to a local media company called Star Fox Media, mm-hmm. and it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. They came in with cameras and a whole crew, and we put it together. It was very educational to see how it's done. Mm-hmm. And of course, we were on a limited budget, so I tried to do my best with what we had, and I played the role of Edgewale, mm-hmm. mostly because, like I said, he's just an inversion of me. So I felt like I could bring him out better than any actor. Gotcha. So tell me about your short story, Cries in the Night, which is your contribution to a collection of short stories entitled These Lingering Shadows that was released by Last Waltz Publishing. Well, Cries in the Night was my first crack at gothic horror, and I am honored to be a part of that project, surrounded by so many great authors. I felt a little out of place because I'm new to the industry, so it was being surrounded by so many just veterans. It was great. Great learning experience. Damon and Candice are incredible. It's an honor now to be a part of Last Walls Publishing. I wrote Cries of the Night. I was trying to tap into the traditional elements of gothic horror, at the same time bringing a few of the modern elements into it, as far as uh, the violence that we like to see in extreme horror. I'm not extreme horror per se. I'd say my genre is more survival horror, but I um, want to incorporate a little bit of that into my story so that there was a different flair to it than traditional gothic horror. Yeah. Yeah. How did you kind of hook up with Last Walls Publishing? I'm very familiar with their work. I've had four or five of their published authors, including Damon Manx himself. There's a lot of talent in that press, and Damon seems like a really cool guy. So how did you hook up with them, and what was the experience like? Well, Damon and I are friends. He's awesome. When I first came to the community on Facebook, he was one of the first people to welcome me into the fold. Mm-hmm. He's a great guy. And I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from watching him, from talking with him. And he, like you said, he's just awesome. He's awesome. He's brilliant. And he's just been a very good friend to me every step of the way. And that's how I hooked up with them. And we talked at the beginning of the year about doing a project together. We knew we wanted to do something together, but my schedule and his schedule weren't matching. And then uh, he told me about these lingering shadows which I was really excited because I wanted to contribute something. And he brought me into it, thankfully, and I was able to make my contributions to the Last Waltz family and the rest is history. Awesome. Well, your, I believe it's a sequel. You have a book in the works, The Cannibal Peaks. Is that going to be the sequel to your current book or is that like a standalone novel? The Cannibal Peaks is a standalone. Okay. It's featuring a new team. It's featuring Raptor Team Extreme Climate Warfare. And they are a team that goes out into very remote areas to neutralize threats that might be hiding out there. So for this story of the Cannibal Peaks, they're heading out to the Jefferson Mountain Range, which I created as a parallel to the Appalachian Mountains. And what they're going to encounter there is going to be something very dark and sinister that's awoken. Usually my novels aren't about the simple missions. They reference those within the novels, but the novels are about the complex ones that are going to change the dynamics of the team forever. What they encounter in the Jefferson Mountain Range is going to really test their limits. Okay. It's going to make a Twilight look like an amateur. <laughs> well, we've been speaking about it a lot without speaking about it. I was curious to know which branch of the military you were in, and you mentioned you were in the Marines. And from what I read, you were specifically a reconnaissance soldier. So can you kind of give us a little bit more specific detail about your time in the military? Recon, I think you got your intel wrong. I was a cook. Were you? I'm just kidding. No, I was, <laughs> I was like, I was like, he's he's got to be fucking with me because I could have sworn I read that. Uh, I was... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I did reconnaissance. Oh, you're a cook like Seagal, where you were actually like a Navy <laughs> SEAL? Is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, something like that. I'm uh, just a cook. <laughs> that's an elite under siege reference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, towards the tail end of my career, I was recruited by the Army to do reconnaissance for them. And it was quite the experience. I learned a lot. I learned a lot on the fly, like I said. And coming from the Marine Corps, I thought it was hot stuff, and it turned out that I really wasn't. I met some pretty high-speed dudes there, and I was able to eventually get brought up to speed and become part of the full and part of the family. And that's where I got a lot of my operational experience that I could contribute to this novel and to all my work. Awesome. And if you tell me any more, you'll have to kill me? (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Classified information. 
Well, so reconnaissance, if I can probe a little deeper, can you explain like what a reconnaissance mission would be for? Like, what are you doing reconnaissance on? Like enemy positions or is it something? Depends on what the commander needs. Okay. We actually did a lot. The basis of it is intelligence gathering. So trying to gather information and then return it back to the commander. We operate in very small units and we go into very dangerous areas, sometimes with little to no support to gather information on enemy troop movements, also on terrain, so that the main body, they were to maneuver in the area, they would have knowledge of what they're about to uncover. The main forces don't actually just move into areas blindly. If you were to do something like that, there would be mishaps that would likely destroy any efforts and would hinder the mission. So our job was to go ahead of those, the main body and do all of those operations. There's route reconnaissance, zone reconnaissance, different types of reconnaissance missions that we would execute in order to provide that information back to the commander. But in theater for Iraq, which is very unconventional war, we would do more than just scout areas. We would do DART missions, which are down aircraft recovery team missions, SARS, search and rescue, search and destroy, search and capture missions, CNE missions, which were a bulk of our intelligence gathering in those days. So we'd go into the Mahalas and meet with a lot of the nationals there, have dinner with them, break bread with them sometimes. It wasn't always guns blazing and Rambo stuff. Basically winning hearts and minds and gathering information so we could find the real bad guys that were hiding amongst the civilians. Yeah, it's awesome. So I guess the character of Elizabeth kind of developed out of a sense of want, like, man, when I was doing these things, I really wish Elizabeth was a real person helping us out during this stuff. It would be nice to have a psychic to tell us, yeah, they're right there, right over there in that basement. Just go in that house, go down the stairs. There should be a little door underneath the rug. And there he is. I would have made the war a lot quicker. Yeah. Elizabeth was created out of necessity. (laughs) So where did you learn the craft of writing? I learned the craft of writing from a lot of trial and error. Okay. It's a very humbling experience. I've been writing since I was about 12 years old, and I didn't start taking it seriously until I left the service and decided that I wanted to do something else with my life. And when I went back to college, I went to college actually to study kinesiology and start my personal training business. But I ended up taking a creative writing class and a few English classes in the meantime and rekindled my love for writing. And that was 12 years ago. So at that point, I asked myself, what do I want to do? Do I want to continue with this? And I did. And taking numerous classes and listening to my beta readers, beta readers are a big part of the learning process because I think one of the biggest shortcomings for writers when we first start out is that we don't try to understand things from the reader's point of view. We just put our information on the paper Mm -hmm. and we don't understand that it has to translate correctly into the theater of the mind in order for the reader to see the picture that we're trying to develop for them. And That long and arduous process is what helped me develop into a writer. And I think that learning for writing is continuous. It never ends. I'm still learning new tricks. I read another individual's work and I'll say to myself, wow, that's really impressive. I need to develop that trick. I need to learn how they were able to convey this message in a certain way. And I actually learned a lot of my tertiary writing skills from communications classes in college, which I was able to understand from my professor that You have to be able to not only say what you mean, but mean what you say. But I didn't quite understand that at first until I took this class. And then I was able to understand that 10 different people can hear the same story and walk away with 10 different stories. So how do I make it so that when I write my story, everyone walks away with the same story or something similar? That ultimately led me to where I am right now as a writer. And so with beta readers, are these people that are far removed from you or people that you know personally? The reason I'm asking is because I wanted to know, like, how hard it is to find somebody that you're close to that will be objective. Or if that's impossible, that's why you use readers that are far removed from you. Well, my social group, (laughs) we pull no punches, (laughs) especially when I told my friends that I wanted to take this professional and they understood I'm blessed to be surrounded by friends I grew up with playing Dungeons and Dragons and telling stories with those guys. And we invented our own games as well on role playing games on paper with dice. And they understood that when you try to do something professional, you have to put your best foot forward. And they're all engineers and scientists now and brilliant businessmen in their own right. And so when I told them this and I told my closest friends this initially, they were like, okay, well, 
we're going to let you have it because we don't want you going out there making a fool of yourself. And I said, thank you because I don't want to go out there and make a fool of myself. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, they let me have it. They let me have it. And my ego was shredded to bits when I first started. And I realized I made a lot of mistakes. And I can tell you one of my biggest mistakes off the jump, one of my biggest mistakes was I was telling and I wasn't showing. Mm-hmm. And that's a very difficult concept to master for a beginning writer. I also was very, very bad with pronoun abuse, very bad pronoun abuse and not knowing when to tie my adjectives. Hmm. So they tore me apart. They tore me apart. I'm thankful to have people who are smarter than me in my life to tell me (laughs) when uh, when I'm messing up. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I'm just a meathead doing the best I can out here. (laughs) You know, roughneck trying to do the best I can. So Mm -hmm. and uh, some of them are longtime friends that I grew up with. And then some of them that I've just met now recently within the last year or so. And I tell you, let me have it. Don't pull the punches. If you see me messing up somewhere, let me know. And in that regard, I feel blessed. Yeah, it's easy to find friends that'll tell you what you want to hear, but it's hard to find friends that'll tell you what you need to hear. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, I noticed on your Instagram page that you had pictures and descriptions of each of your characters. And I'm not sure if they were celebrities or stock photos, but I was wondering if that's how you develop your characters. I've seen people do that before just as kind of a gimmick for people to look at, but I didn't know if maybe that's actually the way you flesh out your characters. Do you have those things posted on your wall while you're writing or... No, actually, it was all just for promotional purposes and help other people see what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, my characters are amalgamations of people that I met throughout my entire life. That's where a lot of it comes from. So Frederick, perfect example. In every unit, no matter how high speed or slick they think they are, there's always that chucklehead, Uh, right? There's always the guy who's going to play the pranks and say the dumb things that just make you slap your forehead and the commander's just snaps. All right, start pushing you Mm -hmm. start pushing. It doesn't matter how high up you get in the ranks. There's always that joker Mm -hmm. and that person's needed because sometimes the atmosphere can just get too intense and you need that relief. And then Callisto is the perfect example of a hard charging soldier who just never gives up, never gives in. And I've met a lot of those individuals as well. Those Mm -hmm. individuals who can take any amount of pain. They're just superhuman and, They just keep moving forward and their attitude and their zest for life and their focus on the mission can never be broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it comes to like the medical field, like in emergent situations, seeing a lot of bad stuff or in your case in the military where you have to see a lot of bad things, people will make some really dark jokes or have kind of a twisted sense of humor and most people that aren't used to that, their inclination is to think that, oh, they're jaded or they're sick, but it's called levity. You've got to sometimes joke because if you don't, you'll lose your damn mind. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that's one of the things that needs to be incorporated in other action scenes. I think that sometimes people forget that soldiers are just people mm-hmm. or people just like anyone else. And we're just out here doing the best we can. I remember a, what did we have on? We had on that documentary Restrepo. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sounds familiar. Yeah, it's a military documentary. And a guy that I work with did two, I guess you would call them tours in Iraq. And so I was watching this and it was these two guys and they both took their shirts off. They put some sort of weird head things on and they grabbed little American flags and they turned on this techno music. It just started bouncing around like idiots. He was sitting there watching this and I was looking at him. I was like, what the hell are these guys doing? And he looked at me. He's like, man, just trying to make it. <laughs> I was like, oh, I got it. That's levity. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, I totally understand. I've had my fair share of goofy things. I, we used to play pranks on each other all the time in the service. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> one, of my, one day, my team leader had put uh, shaving cream inside a, a tire. I don't know how he managed to do it. He managed to put shaving cream inside a tire tube of toothpaste <laughs> and slipped it in uh-huh. to another soldier's hygiene kit. <laughs> <laughs> And, oh, and of course, that tasted god awful. Well, the next day, it was flying across the room, and <laughs> expletives were screamed, and uh-huh. and of course, we all laugh, we chuckle about it now, right? Yeah. But it's part of being human. Well, 
going back to the writing process, my normal assumption is that people that have a military background are rigid outliners. But I interviewed Mason Marks, who was in the Army, I believe. And he said, you know, I get your train of thought, but military is one thing. Writing is creative. The creative side, I just I don't do anything structured. So I'm curious to know your take on that. Are you a pantser or an outliner? I think I'm a hybrid. Okay. Um, I'm a little bit of both. Mostly pantser. I'd probably lean more towards pantsing. I take Stephen King's philosophy. I've read on writing countless times. But, uh, the good stuff, it sticks. And he's absolutely right. So I'll be thinking about an idea. And I don't ever write them down. I don't write them down. I'll think of an idea and I'll be on the road. I'll be managing something. I'll be with a client. And it just hums in the back of my mind. And then when I sit down and I start writing it, once it's written down, I set the characters in place and I'll just let them go from there. Mm-hmm. Let them do what they want to do. All right, here's what's up, ghost. You're up against werewolves. Good luck. And then we just watch how it unfolds. And I think that uh, that's the extent of my planning as far as where I want the characters to go. But what happens in between, that's all them. Mm-hmm. And how do you schedule your writing? Are you just always writing or when you have a book, is it like training for a competition? Or like, all right, I'm writing this novel, so I'm going to do this many days a week, this many words? Something like that. You're absolutely right. When I'm focused on my work, then I'll cut back on the workout times. I cut back on the socializing with friends. I'll cut back on the social media and make sure that I'm able to taper my schedule to knock out my assignments. Because my passion ultimately is to entertain people. And so my passions will always come first. And I always say, okay, time to make 20 hours a week minimum Mm -hmm. for this project. And the Cannibal Peaks was more arduous than usual for me to write because I had a house flood and numerous other issues that had happened. So I was trying to finish this novel at the same time, balance my professional life and then balance the tragedy that was unfolding and then also be a father of three fur babies. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot to it was a lot to balance. And I ended up not liking my third draft and I just completely trashed it and rewrote it from scratch, which is one of the reasons why I was delayed because I realized I wasn't putting my best foot forward. And you have to make the time to put your best foot forward. Mm-hmm. I think everyone in the writing community has said the same thing, that the time has to be made and the focus has to be there because if you don't, you'll never be able to deliver to your readers the best of you. And ultimately that is our goal. Hmm. What kind of an atmosphere do you need? Like, are you dead quiet, a particular room? I know some people that they have a laptop and then if they're out and about, they'll pull their phone out and type something in and cloud sync it when they get back home. Well, um, my ritual starts with usually I'll draw a giant pentagram in my living room floor and I will then set it on fire. Mm. and sacrifice whatever virgin I managed to capture that morning. Mm. And the Dark Lord Lucifer pops up and he says, all right, Nelson, I got a plan for you. <laughs> what you got for me? What you got for me? And he says, I need you to write. No, none of that. Actually, um, I'm pretty simple. Can we just pretend? I, I just... <laughs> because it would, be much, it would be much cooler if that's what you did. <laughs> <laughs> Thought he said he was Christian. Um, I'm pretty simple. I'm a pretty simple guy. Mm. I burn a little bit of frankincense and myrrh. I get my coffee going. I have Nina usually in her chair beside me, ready to rock and roll. And we sit down and sometimes something happens. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm just listening to my soundtracks that I put together. I like to put together soundtracks. I think that music is a vital part of the creation process. And it helped me out a lot. I've discovered many independent artists, independent musicians that actually have the atmosphere for what I'm looking for. And that's how I was able to put my soundtrack together for Whisper in the Dark. Mm-hmm. And that helps out a lot. That helps out a lot. But usually it's early in the morning. The butt crack of dawn, I'm up. And so when I start writing, because once my mind becomes befuddled with the worries and stressors of the day, I don't think I'm able to deliver my best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seven o'clock in the evening, I'm pretty much brain dead. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. I hear that. <laughs> well, is there anything you do outside of reading that you feel makes you a better writer? <sighs> yeah. I think that all of my experiences that make me a better writer comes from life, just going out there and seeing the world. Mm-hmm. And traveling the world as a young man has given me a lot of experience with how things work. And I'm still trying to figure it out. No one thinks that I have it all figured out. I don't. Okay? Yeah. I'm, I'm just like everyone else. I maybe have a little more experience here or there in certain aspects. 
But seeing the world has really helped mm -hmm. me develop and talking with people, not just reading, talking with people and, and understanding how they think will help you develop characters because all of us are so unique and beautiful in our own special way. And I sound a little flower there. It's just a, that's the uh, <laughs> flower side of the occult coming out. But uh, mm -hmm. all of us are unique and special. And we develop our own worlds. Those are the subjective worlds. And when you speak to someone, you can become amazed just to hear how they think. Don't judge. I don't judge. I don't expect anything. I just usually like to converse with people. And I know people probably think that's weird. I'll be standing in the grocery line. And I'll turn around and say, Something to strike up conversation with the person behind me. And before I know it, we're 10 minutes into a conversation on what they do for a living. And I've learned more about construction than I knew before. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I learned maybe they're a plumber or maybe they're a police officer. And you develop valuable knowledge that way. And it starts to help you create a more vivid picture of the worlds that you create when you sit down at your desk. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be a correlation with great writing and experience. I mean, you think about someone like Hemingway, that guy. <laughs> That guy was one of the most adventurous people on the face of the planet. So um, what would you say is your favorite part of the writing process? My favorite part of the writing process? Ooh, that's a tough question. I would say actually sitting down and getting to write it and seeing the characters unfold because I like to pants a good portion of it. Mm -hmm. I get surprised sometimes and I'm like, oh, wow, this person's getting castrated. <laughs> Isn't that coming? So, so I get surprised sometimes. But the other part, because it's a tie, it's that one's a tie. The other part is when readers give me feedback, and I have an open door. Everyone knows that. I have so many messages that fly in my Instagram and Facebook with questions, comments, and concerns about my work. And that's the best feeling in the world when someone's read your work, they've appreciated it. And you know what? Also, is another great feeling when someone read your work and they have something to help you make it better. I think you should do this, whether it's something that I'm actually going to utilize or not, because I have to stay true to the character. Someone I believe didn't like Frederick being such a jokester and a prankster. He's not anymore after what happened, but they didn't like that. But I had to stay true to him because that's who he is. And I also had to stay true to the fact that I wanted each character to feel different. But every bit of advice, whether I utilize it or not, I'm thankful for. Mm -hmm. Conversely, what's the least enjoyable part of the writing process for you? Editing. Yeah. <laughs> That's everyone's answer. Yeah. Right? Sometimes I think I just shouldn't even ask that question. <laughs> oh, wow. I, uh, I cringed so hard mm -hmm. when I was reading the third draft of the cannibal piece that I thought my spine was about to break. Mm -hmm. I was like, good grief. What were you thinking, guy? So do you edit your own work or do you let somebody else have a hack at it? Well, I have two editors okay. and I edit my own work and then I have my beta readers when they look at it. But when I got in the third draft back from one of my beta readers and I was looking at it and then my editor had told me I needed to reel in some of the syntax. She was absolutely right. Shout out to Sally. She's a brilliant woman. I needed to reel it in. So I scratched my head as I was going through it again. And I was like, you know what? I've cringed enough. My cringing has gone into the triple digits. It's time to go back to the drawing board. It's a humbling experience, but it was necessary. Yeah. I think the reason I continue to ask the question is I'm waiting for that one person that's just going to blow my mind and say, oh, I am the most tedious, detailed person on the face of the planet. Editing is orgasmic. <laughs> <laughs> good, good luck with that one. <laughs> uh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I'm going to keep asking. It. So anyway, what is the life of Guy Quintero like outside of writing? Um, let's see here. Robbed the bank about a week ago. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of cannibalism. You're right. You are not a devout Christian. <laughs> oh. oh, that's why I got to be a little too honest there. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So. You can't, you can't be robbing. And what was that cannibalism I heard? Um, no, <laughs> no, no. I just made that up. <laughs> so let's see here. Weightlifting, nerdy things like Dungeons and Dragons, gaming. I love gaming. I play Call of Duty sometimes which pisses people off because I utilize the tactics that I learned from the service, pine corners, things like that, creating sectors of fire with just create a sector of fire and do overwatch in that region. That's a lot of fun to see people cursing me out and saying that they've had their way with my mother. <laughs> Everyone has apparently. <laughs> I bet. So that's a lot of, fun. do you ever play laser tag? No, I haven't. I haven't. I have a friend who does though. Oh God, they would hate you. <laughs> like who's this? Who's this guy that comes out of nowhere and just snipes everybody? Now, that's a good time. Yeah. I'm not usually into stuff like that, but I played laser tag one time. I actually kind of enjoyed it. Oh, so, I bet you did. I bet you did. So you're not doing any kind of 
personal training on the side. That was something you did a while back. No, sir. I've closed my doors. It was a very lucrative and fun business. I still have clients who reach out to me as far as if they need advice or anything like that, but my doors are closed there. I train family members sometimes when they, hey, I want this and I want to learn how to do this. Come with me to the gym and I'll work with them. But for the most part, yeah, my doors are closed as a personal trainer. Okay. Well, what did you think of the movie Martyrs? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I still need to catch up with that one. You haven't seen it? I haven't seen it. Oh, seen God. It. Well, I probably sound like a broken record to anybody that's listened to more than one of my episodes, but it's my favorite movie. And I mean, my favorite movie, period, not favorite horror movie. It's my favorite movie, period. And I just, I mean, it's got everything. It's got the psychological aspect, which is the best part. It just blows your mind at the end. You don't see it coming. Violence is just intense. So like not for the faint of heart. Jump scares. What else am I missing? Now, if you don't like subtitles, because I am talking about the 2008 French version, I'm not talking about the 2015 remake, which I will not even watch. (laughs) (laughs) So if you got a problem with subtitles, that may be an issue. You may have to learn French. But I highly recommend that movie. If anything that I said sounds somewhat interesting to you, definitely jump onto that. I have no problem with subtitles. I'm actually very interested now. That one's going on the list. Absolutely. I got a big old smile as you're explaining. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Nice. I don't know what that says about me, but it's definitely my favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) I might need therapy. Who knows? So, well, what is your current goal in life? Right now, my current goal in life is just to entertain my readers. That's it. To be honest with you, I'm a pretty simple man. Entertain my readers and try to live to a ripe old age. (laughs) Try to live to a ripe old age. How old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 40. 40? 40 years old. Oh, I've got two years on you. I am an old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they fly by. You know, just ask that question. I had to think about us. Oh, how old am I? <laughs> yeah. At a certain point, you don't care how old you are anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think I stopped caring at 21. Once I could drink, it was all good. And then that became a thing. So I don't even drink anymore. Got those experiences all out of the way. I hear so. that. Me too. Well, Guy, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Likewise, this felt like I was talking with an old friend. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here, and this meant the world to me. Absolutely. I appreciate you being on the show. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? The, the Cannibal Peaks will be coming out soon. We're shooting for a January release. I apologize in advance to all readers who have been poking me about when it will be released. Uh, January is when it will be out. And please let me know what you think about that one as well. My door is always open to my readers, always open. And I don't consider my readers just readers. I consider all of you my friends. Awesome. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Guy, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.